Welcome to Kaya, the college and young adult ministry of Midtown Baptist Temple, a ministry seeking to pursue a deeper faith in Jesus Christ through God's Word, fellowship, and prayer. Good morning, everybody. It's good to see you. Thank you for... Thank you for braving the weather. There's some tinny-sounding things happening behind me. Chance, I don't see you, but I assume you're on the case. Okay. <clears throat> uh, but but uh, school starts back up this week for many of you, um, and we've got a mission to talk about. So we're going to get right into it. We're going to be in Acts chapter 13. Lots to address today, lots to cover. Uh, people, who, who stayed um, bundled up and in your home all day yesterday? Like you didn't, you didn't hardly move, budge, that's about half of us. <clears throat> so your body is, is just now gaining oxygen, you're moving around, <laughs> and, you're, and you're coming out of that coma. Please, uh, please be with me, do your breathing exercises, even right now, deep breaths, to get your brain functioning. Here we go. Uh, today's message is titled, When Preaching Meets Prevention. Prevention. Um, so last we were together in Acts chapter 13, we saw Barnabas and Saul uh, ordained. Now, now we talked about specifically how they were called Trained, separated, and then sent, right? And we walked through that very thoroughly. Uh, if you missed that because you were, you were away, uh, you know, for the new year or whatever, um, then, then you need to go back and check that out. Uh, it's very crucial for us as a ministry to understand the progress of growth uh, as the Bible uh, prescribes. There is a process of growth, and it requires commitment. It requires a calling out. Uh, surrender your life to Jesus Christ. It requires a commitment to training, that you're going to be trained in God's Word. Some of you um, recognize a need for training, but you haven't yet begin that, begun that process. And that means that you need to sign up for discipleship. You need to take that seriously. Um, some of you in this room have just now gotten paired for discipleship. Okay, I'm telling you, I'm telling you, you're going to be challenged in that decision. And you need to be prepared for training. You can't, you can't just expect that if you disappear here and there and you're not consistent in your attendance at church, you're not consistent in your Bible study, and you're not consistent in meeting with your discipler, that you're, you're going to somehow uh, grow in your faith. That's not how it works. You've got to be consistent. And eventually you'll be separated for a work. And you'll be, you'll be tasked. You'll be mobilized for the gospel's sake. And then for some of you, you'll eventually be sent uh, you, know, uh, you know, some of you will be sent to your neighborhood, to your classroom, to your campus. Some of you will be sent uh, across the nation. Uh, some of you will be sent across the world. And, and that's what we see here happening in Saul and Barnabas' life and in their ministry is that they're being sent uh, to go and to perform the work of the gospel, the Great Commission in other places. Now, as we move forward in our story, we're going to see that these guys faced some pretty serious opposition along the way. And we're going to, from here until the remainder of the book, we're going to see over and over again these missionaries challenged wherever they take the gospel. It doesn't go easily. We have an enemy. We have an enemy who seeks to oppose us, who seeks to prevent us from sharing the gospel. When we determine to live the Great Commission, there is no way around it we're going to face opposition. We've got to know that up front, and that's what today's message is about. What I really want you to consider today, as we look at this story, is, is I want you to consider the fact that wherever you decide to take the gospel, there are going to be enemies waiting for you there. And so I want you to use your imagination just for a moment. Where is it that you're currently taking the gospel? It might be to a campus or to a classroom. It might be to your family members. It might be to your friends. Right? Wherever you go with the gospel, you need to recognize there's going to be opposition there. Now, 
Initially, our opposition is often ourselves. And that's the first point that we're going to address today. So let's pray, let's prepare our hearts, and then let's get into it. Are, are you guys with me this morning? Yes. Okay, you're ready for this. Yes. It's going to be dense. Alon? Ready. Go. Okay, man. <laughs> Bring it. All right. Is this, now, is this, your, this is now your spot, isn't it? My spot. I like that. Yeah. I like that. You're like an old church woman. <laughs> wear a bonnet. You've got, yeah, wear a bonnet. Do you have some Werther's Originals in your bag? No. Oh. All the old ladies when I was growing up in church, they had their spot where they sat, right? And they had Werther's Originals and tissues. You, you have tissues? No tissues. Okay, well, you've got to start working on that. Okay, let's, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we love you and we trust you that you're going to be with us today in your word. And, and there's a room full of people here. Many of them I know. Uh, many of them are dear friends. Lord, uh, many of them are new to me, and they've only just begun attending here. Uh, some people, it's their first time. And so, Lord, with a room full of people who are um, from, from many different backgrounds, many different experiences, uh, many different approaches to your word, many different thoughts and fears, anxieties, uh, Lord, there's no way I can address everyone specifically in my flesh, but Lord, when your spirit goes before me, when your word is preached, Lord, everyone is reached. And so, Lord, help us this morning to receive exactly what it is that we need from your word. Um, God, I know that there are people here, this, a room this big with this many people, there are people here who just don't know you. They've never come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. They've never surrendered their lives. They've never answered the call. And so, Lord, for them, I just ask that, that the power and the authority of your word this morning, the communication of the person of Jesus Christ, would compel them. And that, Lord, they would reach out and lay hold on the gift that they didn't have to earn, Lord, that Jesus Christ gave willingly. I just ask that they would receive that for those who know Jesus as their Savior and need to be challenged by this message. Lord, I pray that we would, we would all uh, have a deeper faith because of what we've heard today. Lord, that our convictions would run deeper. That our passions and our zeal to follow you would be greater than they've ever been. Lord, help us, uh, because we can do nothing without you. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Verse 3, Acts 13, verse 3. And when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. That, that being the church in Antioch, sent Barnabas and Saul, and with them uh, the Tagalong long, uh, John Mark. They sent them away. Now the question becomes, where do they go? It says, so they being sent forth by the Holy Ghost, we know who sent them. We know it was the, the compelling of the Holy Spirit. We know that it was the provocation of God that sent them away. But they chose to depart unto Seleucia. From thence they sailed to Cyprus. And so there's a map here on the, the next slide. And you can see, and this is a, that's our question, we'll come back to that. You can see where they chose to go. This is where they're at. Okay, they sail here to Cyprus, all right? They first visit Salamis, we'll talk about that in a moment, and then they head over to Paphos. So the question is, uh, if you're paying any attention at all to this passage, the question is, how do they decide to go there? How do they decide to go there? How do they decide on Cyprus as the first location to visit? See, the Spirit wasn't clear as it concerns this matter. The Spirit simply said, go forth. And it causes us to ask, how does anyone decide where they are going to preach the gospel? It's a fair question. I mean, I know that, that many of you, we've worked through this one-on-one. -on -one. We've had these conversations. Where is it I'm supposed to go? I'm not 100% sure who I'm supposed to go to. Who am I supposed to preach to? Which campuses I, campus I'm supposed to be on, uh, be on? Which degree am I supposed to pursue? I mean, these are the types of questions that, we're, that are always over our head, especially when we're young. Where am I supposed to be? What place am I supposed to be at? And who am I supposed to preach to? And as we consider Paul and Barnabas, the island of Cyprus really does seem to make sense. Okay, bear with me for a second here. Barnabas was from Cyprus. This is where he came from. 
This, is, this was his home. It was familiar to him. These were the people that he knew. Another thing that we should consider is that after Stephen was stoned, you guys remember that? After Stephen was stoned, that there was a scattering of believers all over. And many of them found themselves in Cyprus. And so there were, there were Christians that were scattered about on the island of Cyprus who didn't have leaders, didn't have anyone to guide them, anyone to teach them, or anyone to establish churches. And so there was Christians there waiting for leadership. And so as it concerns choosing Cyprus, they went because it made sense. And that's a very pragmatic approach to living the gospel, isn't it? I think for many of us, what we're looking for in life is that one night we'll be praying in our bed, and as lightning is flashing, the voice of God comes to us and tells us exactly what it is that we're supposed to do. And if we're honest with ourselves, many of us are waiting on those moments to obey. I mean, to go even further, the first place that they choose to go when they get there is the synagogue which is a place just of familiarity, right? Saul and Barnabas would have both, as, as men who were previously Jews, spent tons of time in the synagogue, and they would, have just, they would have gone there to preach just because that was a place that was familiar to them. And my point to you is this, that many of us are suspended in indecisiveness as it concerns living the gospel that we know. Because we're waiting, we're stuck on the who and the where. And it's that inner dialogue inside of our mind, inside of our heart, and that reservation, and the fact that we haven't received a clear answer to that, those questions, we get suspended, we get stuck. And ultimately, what was once a question about who and where, it eventually morphs into an excuse to disobey God. So key point number one, this is very, very important for us to understand, growing leaders. Listen, indecisive preaching is the precursor to spiritual poverty. And what I mean by that is that Christians that are constantly asking questions almost always ended up, end up stuck and in bondage to their questions. They get stuck. I mean, I, I watch it all the time. People who are actually even equipped to preach the Word of God, they know exactly what their mission is. They get so stuck on the questions that they, they never actually move forward in their faith to live the thing that they know. Our failure to make decisions will absolutely turn us into lazy Christians who are, fruit, who are fruitless, and who will stand at the judgment seat of Christ empty-handed. And I, and I think that for the people in this room who know Jesus Christ as the Lord and Savior, your greatest fear should be standing at the judgment seat, fruitless. That should be your greatest fear. You've already been saved from hell. But now what you do is you need to save yourself from being naked and ashamed at the judgment seat. You were saved by Jesus Christ from damnation. But you save yourself from nakedness, shamefulness, by choosing the, to do the thing that you know that you're supposed to do. Now, now Proverbs 6, 9, this is an important verse, says, How long wilt thou sleep, O sluggard? When wilt thou arise out of thy sleep? Yet a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to sleep, so shall thy poverty come as one that traveleth, and thy want as an armed man. In other words, what this is saying is, we can, we can continue to wander as Christians and be people that have purpose. We've adopted purpose. We've inherited purpose in Jesus Christ. And we can wander about looking at where we're supposed to serve and asking questions, and we might as well just be asleep. A little folding of the hands, a little rest, a little time to contemplate. A little moment to ask the, the hard questions, you know? And eventually you're in slumber, paralyzed, lazy. There's two things 
that the mission has no time for. Two things. The first thing is respecter of persons. The mission has no time for you to be afraid of people. And we'll, we've seen that so far in Acts, haven't we? We've seen the boldness of men like Peter who say that I, I ought to obey God rather than men. We see that, right? And we will continue to see it in the life of Paul as we continue to walk through Acts. But there's a lot of you who are just respecters of people. And you'll never get anything done for the gospel's sake because you're too busy worried about what people might think of you. The mission has no time for that. I'm sorry if this is a little bit of a bold message for you this morning. But we have to hear this. This is where we're at in the scripture. The only thing that we're going to see moving forward now is boldness in the lives of the apostles. I don't know how to, 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 to you know, pussyfoot around that. Okay? I don't know how to be tenderfooted about that. The mission has no time for respecters of persons. And the mission has no time for lazy and lethargic and immobile believers stuck on who and where. David Livingstone, uh, the, the great uh, African missionary, says, I am willing to go anywhere as long as it's forward. I'm willing to go anywhere as long as it's forward. Now, there's some of us who would say, I'm willing to pretend in my mind that I'd be willing to go anywhere as long as I can sit here on my rear end and not do the one thing that God has called me to do. Are you hearing me? We have to be people moving forward. We must respond to the call of go with okay. Not okay, let me sit here and wait until I get more clarity. You know, one of the most beautiful pieces of advice that I ever received was from the pulpit of Alan Shelby. I was probably about 18 years old when I heard this. But Alan said that you should make a plan, but be open to letting God change it. In other words, in the absence of clarity, in the absence to the answers to the questions, you should make a plan in the knowledge and the will of who God is and what his word says. You should make a plan and expect that along the way, he'll change that plan, he'll give you more clarity, and you will respond with, yes, Lord. Does this make sense? And I took, that, I took that pretty seriously. See, God's will is that you preach. So do that in the most faith-filled, yet pragmatic and straightforward way that you know how. And if he finds you working, perhaps his plan for you will impose itself in a moment. And that he might provide you with greater clarity. But until then... Get to freaking work. Get to work. You know, just like us, Paul and Barnabas probably had more questions than answers. I mean, I think we like to think that Paul always had the, the right answer. He didn't. I mean, we're going to get to it later on in the book, but there's a moment in his ministry where he starts heading several different directions, and God keeps telling him no. There are moments when Paul just doesn't have an answer, and he has to... He has to, to wait. But the thing is that Paul never really stayed still in his waiting because his, he knew his responsibility was to preach the gospel. Their ignorance wasn't going to keep them from obedience. And your ignorance, your ignorance of God's word, your, your you know, I, like I, let's just be honest for a second. Almost every single person that I prayed with at Mission Focus came forward because they were riddled with questions that they didn't have answers to. And they felt suspended. I, I probably prayed with 15 to 20 people who were, who were compelled, who were convicted, who were provoked to go forward and, and to sit and to pray with me. 
And almost every one of those people were suspended by questions. And here's the answer to that. Obey. Obey. And as you go, and as you walk the straight and narrow, guess what? The clarity will come. But, but you know, the, the, the Word of God is a light to our feet, right? It's a light to our feet. And yet so, so many of us, we want streetlights to run the entire length of that narrow walkway. And if we can't see what's a mile ahead of us, we don't even want to move forward now. The light is for our feet. So step forward. And the best place to start is in your own backyard. And go there to find out whether or not the fish are biting. If you can't fish the pond that you have, then why would you ever go fish anywhere else? Seems ridiculous. Work, the, work that pond until it's time to fish somewhere else. Paul and Barnabas started with where they were from and what they knew and what was culturally familiar to them. Key point number two. When beginning to share the gospel, start with the people and places that are the most familiar. Now, listen to me. That's, that's not necessarily doctrine that I'm giving you. Usually the key points are some like bodacious doctrinal statement. This is just pure, this is principle. This is just, this is practical information that's principled in God's word. And like, I honestly believe that principally in scripture, besides some rare occasions, what we see in faithful men and women of God is that they begin with what they know. They begin with what they know. And so for you, that's a campus. For you, that's a workplace. For you, that's a family member. That's a friend. And what you need to do is say, hey, I've got a Bible. I believe in it. Come sit with me. Let's learn. Let's talk. Would you, would you be willing to do that? It means beginning to open your mouth with people that you're afraid to open your mouth with. Now, I'm not telling you that you're going to be exceptionally fruitful. I'm not going to do that. Now, this particular trip to Cyprus was fruitful. And eventually, we're going to see a church planted in Cyprus. We're going to see multiple trips there. In fact, Barnabas puts his roots down in Cyprus, his hometown, and continues to minister, minister there eventually. But on the flip side of that coin, we're reminded that Jesus Christ went to what was familiar to him, right? He went to his hometown. He went back to Nazareth. And when those people rejected him, he said, Verily I say unto you, no prophet is accepted in his own country. And for some of you, that will be your experience. You're going to go to your family members and they're going to be like, no, nah, we know you. We know who you are. And that, that will be their excuse not to listen to you. And guess what? That's okay. That's okay. Because you were faithful to doing what was right in front of you. But listen, what we're going to see over time is that Paul and Barnabas trust the Lord to go and preach. That's what they do. And sometimes they're received by the people there, and sometimes they're rejected. And sometimes they're persistent, and other times they relent, not in faithlessness. They just decide that it's time to dust off their feet and move on. Sometimes the next place on the agenda is clear, and sometimes it's not. But the point here is that we ought to go. And it's not really that difficult. It's not that difficult. Sometimes we make it way more difficult than it should be, way more difficult. Wherever you're at, preach the gospel. Wherever you're at, preach the gospel. Leave the questions behind. Leave them alone. Wherever you're at, preach the gospel. Do that. Be diligent. Work that field. Fish that pond. 
until it's time to move somewhere else. You understand? That's who we have to be. Now, moving along, verse 5 says, And when they were at Salamis, they preached the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. And they had also John to their minister. That's Mark. Now, they weren't confused by their task. They knew exactly what they were supposed to do. They knew their responsibility was to preach the word. Not to build wells. Nothing wrong with wells. Nothing wrong with fresh water. Nothing wrong with that. But their responsibility was to go and to preach. That was their responsibility. That's the work of the missionary is to preach. And if other things get in the way of the preaching, then we've failed to be missionaries. And I want to say that because there's a perspective in the world that says if we go and we serve, that we're somehow living the Great Commission. No, 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 no. There's nothing wrong with going and serving. But that is not the objective. The objective is to go and to preach. And if the serving begets preaching, then praise God. But if the serving gets in the way of the preaching, it's a failure. It's an absolute failure. Because you can feed hungry and starving children and send them straight to hell. And that's a serious matter. So we ought to not confuse missions with anything other than going to preach. And they go and they, they preach in the synagogues. And then they cross the island by foot and arrive at Paphos. And we're going to talk about Paphos here in a second. But let's address key point number three. No matter where you're sent, the objective remains the same. That's to preach and to disciple. Now what we're going to see as we continue on, we're following Paul and Barnabas, is that their objective is always to establish a church of disciples. And we'll see that happen on this missionary journey. Right? And it's the reason why they come back to Cyprus later, is to make sure that, that disciples are being established. I mean, that was the primary objective of Paul's life, was to evangelize, establish people in churches, and then he checks back in with them regularly as they have a minister and a preacher uh, that, that is built up and grown within those places. Deacons, he, he wants to make sure and ensure that a proper church, a New Testament church structure is developed there so that disciples can be made, right? That's what we see happening over and over again. They go and they liberate people with the gospel and then they train them for the work. And it's absolutely simple. It's not easy, but it's simple. It's simple. So we ought not confuse those objectives, Amen. Please know that. Please know that, that your job from now until the very end is going to be to evangelize people, to liberate them, and to disciple them. And I hope that doesn't get boring for you. I hope that that doesn't grow old. Because we get bored real easy. Like if things... Like, here's a question for you. If 20 years from now, you are still at Midtown Baptist Temple, and you are just faithfully discipling one-on-one, -on -one, are you going to be satisfied with that? Like, if you're, if you're not, I don't know, wherever you imagine being a missionary, Barbados, <laughs> Right? If you're not where you imagine you should be, okay, or maybe, okay, here's a, here's a conceptual Barbados, men. If you're not ordained a pastor, if you're not leading in the capacity that you imagined when you were 19, 20, 23 years old, and God has counted you worthy to just disciple the rest of your life, will your arrogance make you bored? Will you grow restless? There was a moment, there was a moment, I'm just going to be, this is a story, I, I didn't think I'd ever tell this story, I'm going to tell this story. There was, a, there was a moment a few years ago where my job was so overwhelming at the high school. I, I was given so much time to work and so much time to the ministry here 
that it was almost impossible to do either things well. And I was like, I was like dying. I mean, I remember one point when I was, I was working at Longview and I was working at the high school and I was pastoring high school students. I was, uh, I remember one night uh, being at Longview, getting ready for class and Havila was there. And she's like, you look terrible. <laughs> and I was, I was broken out in hives. Like I, I didn't know, I mean, I don't even, to this day, I don't even know. I had hives. I had lost like 15 pounds. We were getting ready to have Eloise. It was like we were, another kid was on the way. And I was just exhausted. I was, no, actually, we had just had Clementine. Yeah, we had just had Clementine. And I was exhausted. I was so tired. And I went to Sam, and I said, Sam, <clears throat> I sat him down. This is a real serious conversation. I'm going to make light of it right now. But it was serious. I mean, I was tired, and I was emotional. And I said, Sam. I don't have to be a pastor to be happy. And, and if it would make me more effective as a father, and it would make me more effective at my job as an evangelist working that field, I will gladly step down from the pastorate, and I will be the best disciple maker this church has ever seen. And I will just disciple. And I'll just do that from now until eternity, and I'll be completely okay with that. And it was a, it was a moment I had to really reckon with myself. Am I going to be faithful? Am I willing to be faithful with the simplicity of the Great Commission? Or do I need to have a title? Do I need to be important? I don't need to be important. I need to serve my Lord. I need to love Him. I need to adore Him. And I need to obey Him in every regard. And that starts by preaching the gospel and discipling people right where I'm at. But what happens when your preaching is met with prevention? Because it will be. What happens when there's resistance to the gospel? What happens when the enemy wants to pick a fight? Okay, so here's the juicy part of the story. Are you ready? This is where it gets good. Okay? Verse 6, the prevention. We've talked about the people in the place. We've talked about the preaching. Now it's time to talk about the prevention. Verse 6. When they had gone through the isle unto Paphos, they found a certain sorcerer. That's never good, right? <laughs> Guys, I want to say this. I'm going to say it briefly. I won't dwell here. I know sorcerers. And for those of you who go to the Kansas City Art Institute, I guarantee there are sorcerers on your campus. There are people who are practicing witchcraft, no doubt. And your friends who think that tarot cards are just fun, ain't fun. That ain't no game. That's sorcery. We can talk about that later if you want. They found a certain sorcerer, a false prophet, a Jew whose name was Bar-Jesus, which was the deputy of the country, Sergius, uh, Sergius Paulus, a prudent man, who called for Barnabas and Saul and desired to hear the word of God. So what we have is that when Paul, Barnabas, and Mark traveled west to Paphos, they encountered a man named Bar-Jesus, or as he's referred to in the story, Elamos. That's his Greek name. Who, who was prepared to greet them. Okay? Um, so, he, he works for Sergius Paulus, this man does. And he's sent by Sergius Paulus to go and, and greet Paul and Barnabas, as they come into Paphos, that's what's going on here. And so just briefly, Bar-Jesus' name means son of Jesus. Now, now the name Jesus is, is Joshua, right? Yeshua, Joshua, son of Joshua. And so what this really means is, is that Bar-Jesus' name was son of Joshua, his father being Joshua, right? Someone named Joshua. It's like a... Simon Bar-Jonas, Simon's father, was named Jonah. And so he's Simon Bar-Jonas, right? Does that make sense to you? But I think it's an interesting idea that, and this, if you were with us in the last message, is that the enemy often comes as an antichrist, right? Comes in the name of Jesus. But that doesn't necessarily mean that they're of Jesus. Does that make sense? That's just a side note. 
Sergius Paulus was the deputy of the county, an assigned ruler who presided uh, over imperial provinces. That's who he was. And we learned that Sergius Paulus was interested in the message that Paul and Barnabas were carrying. He wanted to hear the gospel. And so he sent Elamas to receive them and escort them to meet him and discuss the terms of the gospel. He's arranging a meeting. But like most gospel opportunities, there's often someone there or something there to prevent the word of God going forth. Has anybody ever experienced that? There's often an enemy waiting. When you're ready to preach the gospel, when you're ready to share the truth of who Jesus Christ is, there's often an enemy waiting. Verse 8 says, But Elamos the sorcerer, for so his name by interpretation, withstood them, seeking to turn away the deputy from the faith. Luke 8.5 says, A sower went out to sow his seed, and as he sowed, some fell by the wayside, and it was trodden down, and the fowls of the air devoured it. Oftentimes, we're going to sow the seeds of the gospel, and there will be a fowl that comes down, swoops down, and is prepared to gobble up the very thing that we're hoping will take root. That's true. And it's important for us to know that. It's important for us to be aware of that. It's important for our hearts to be prepared that the enemy is going to do that work. Key point four. Preaching will absolutely be met with diverse forms of opposition. You ought to know that. You ought to be prepared for that. If you're determined to seek and save souls, there will rarely be a moment that you aren't faced with some form of resistance. And obviously the attack comes in, in waves and it will be in varying, varying forms at varying levels of opposition. Sometimes you'll have moments of great fruitfulness and, and, and bounty, but there will absolutely, for most of you, always be some situation, some person, something working to distract the people that you're ministering to from the gospel. And you've got to know your enemy. You've got to know your enemy. We ought not be discouraged by this work. Because if you start to get discouraged, then you'll, you'll fall prey to the distraction yourself. You will be the prey. It cannot become discouraging. It might be frustrating, but we cannot afford to be frustrated individuals. We can't afford that. Now, I want us to look at Bar-Jesus for a second because he's actually a bodily representation of almost every type of enemy resistance that we might face. And so if you're a note-taker, we're going to move real fast through this. I want to point this out to you. First and foremost, he was a sorcerer, which means he represents dark spiritual authority. Demonic activity that seeks to derail our heart and mind in its pursuit of God. Forces that are invisible, and they're just as invisible as they are real. He's a messenger and an agent of the devil himself. And what does that mean? Is, it, is that Bar-Jesus represents to us a tactic, a tactic of the mobilization of invisible forces in the work of the ministry. Now listen to me. What I'm saying is that there are going to be things going on that you can't see when you're ministering. And I'm asking for you to have faith to believe that this is true. The, the scriptures are very clear on this. There are invisible forces at work in this world. Forces of darkness that seek to oppose you as an agent of light. And there is an enemy that is seeking when you can't see them. When you're at home sleeping, that enemy is at work. Sowing, sowing seeds of division, speaking words into the ears of people, orchestrating scenarios that would cause the seeds that you sow to be swallowed up by fowl. Are you hearing me? And if you struggle to believe that, 
And if you struggle to acknowledge that, then you're going to struggle to respond rightly to attack. You have to know your enemy. You have to know that your enemy is a demonic force at work in this world. And he's on double duty as we reach the end. Second, he's a false prophet. Bar-Jesus is a false prophet. He represents leaders and instructors who might misguide and abuse truth. As we teach the gospel, these are the people that are teaching their own truths in opposition to the Bible. Friends, family members, people of different faith systems than you, heretical denominations, online articles, blog posts, videos, televangelists, etc., etc., false prophets. And these abound in our world today. Seems like everybody has a truth that they're selling. And so much of it's not biblical. And so one of Satan's primary tactics is false teaching. And as a false prophet, Bar-Jesus represents false teaching in the world. And you're going to come up against it. And that's why you need to know the word. Being aware of the fact that there are false teachers in the world, you need to be ready to give an answer of the joy that's in you. You have to have an answer, and the answer resides in the truth of the Scriptures. You cannot stop learning God's Word. Don't fall asleep on that duty. You need to know God's Word. It's the only way to oppose false teachers. Third, he's a Jew. Nothing inherently wrong with being a Jew, obviously. But listen to me. In terms of the narrative, in terms of what's happening in Acts, he represents the interests of religious heritage and tradition and pedigree, an embodiment of pride. As it concerns the narrative of Acts, that's what the Jews represent. Those who are resistant to the truth of Scripture and the grace of Jesus Christ, they frustrate it with religious duty and law. In this regard, Elamos represents the, work, the works-based religious systems that surround and entrench people in our world. His primary tactic is religious and cultural oppression. Are you catching this? Is this making sense to you? There are people in your life who will not receive the gospel because of their religious tradition. They can't, they can't see themselves letting go of Buddhism or Hinduism or Catholicism or Mormonism or whatever ism they might hold to. It could be a philosophy. They can't see themselves accepting Jesus Christ because they can't see themselves letting go of their past. They won't lay hold on the gift because they can't repent. Are you hearing me? This is a tactic of the enemy in our world, and we have to be prepared for it. Fourth, he's a government employee. Also, not necessarily. I mean, I worked for the government. But listen, he's a man of worldly influence and power is the point. He represents the world and its complex power structures. Systems that mask people from their needs, social systems, political systems, philosophical systems, economic systems, cultural systems, intellectual systems of all sorts, infrastructures that complicate life and muffle the voice of the gospel. Does that make sense to you? In other words, his primary tactic is worldly systematic deceptions. I mean, I, could, I don't think I have time to do it, but, but think about it for a moment in terms of example. What are the structures in your life that serve to distract you from the gospel? What are the worldly infrastructures? Right? It could even, it could even be paying your bills. It could even be your job. It could even be your friendships. But Satan, Satan has your number. He's watched you, some of you, 20, 25, 
30 years. He's watched you, and he's got your number, and he knows the system that is going to keep you in check. And he knows that for, for, there, are, there are demons at work who are perpetrating against the people that you would minister to, that you would share the gospel with, who are orchestrating infrastructure in this worldly system to distract from the truth of the gospel. It's absolutely real. And all of the verse references, this is just, a, this is not even, this doesn't even touch it in terms of reference, okay? I could have found a, a hundred verse references for each of these, these, these systems that oppose us. But the point is that you have to know your enemy. Each facet of Elamos represents the fowls of the earth, the powers that seek to rob the soil of the seed. James 3.15 says, This wisdom descendeth not from above, but is earthly, sensual, devilish. For where envy, envying and strife is, there is confusion and every evil work. And that was the, this sorcerer Elamos's primary objective was to prevent Sergius of uh, Paulus from hearing and receiving the gospel. We don't know the words that he spoke. They don't, they're not given to us. We don't know the deceptions that he whispered into his ear. We don't know what was said that day. But we know that he was trying to perpetrate the truth of, of God's word. He was trying to perpetrate against it. Evil, de devilish, earthly, sensual, lies that would rob the people of hearing and receiving God's word. Key point number five. No form of opposition will disable our, our resolve or deter us from our gospel voice. Now I'm saying that as a declaration. Now I can't, I can't answer for you. I don't know what you'll determine in your own heart and mind. You'll have to do that in a quiet place. Just, beca just because I say it and I declare it now doesn't mean it's true for you. But for me, I will declare that no form of opposition will disable my resolve. I don't care if I get kicked off campus for sharing the gospel. Some of you experienced that last semester. <laughs> That's not going to keep me from sharing the gospel. I mean, the tactics better get better than that. I am not afraid of what the enemy says or does. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid of that. Because I, I serve a king. So the question becomes, how do we deal with the enemy? And this is how we'll close out. We'll move really quick here. Every opposition to the gospel is a spiritual opposition. Yeah. Ephesians 6.11, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, powers, uh, against powers, against the rulers of darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. So every, every act against the gospel is a spiritual attack. It's a spiritual enemy. It's a spiritual device. Whether it seems physical or not, an illness, a disease, a person, whatever it might be, is absolutely spiritual. You understand? We have to see it through that lens. So the first thing we see, verse 9, Then Saul, who also is called Paul, filled with the Holy Ghost. Now listen. You can't do anything in light of the enemy. You can't do anything you don't have the power in you. You don't have it in you. You don't, get, you don't play chess with the enemy. So the first thing we need in the face of opposition is to be filled with the Spirit of God. We know that we have as much of the Spirit of God as He's willing to give. We have every bit. 
of the Spirit of God residing inside of us. If you accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you got every bit of the Spirit that day that you could possibly get. See, the issue in yielding, the issue in being filled with the Holy Ghost is absolute surrender to that power that resides inside you. See, the issue is whether or not you're willing to let go of you and be filled with the knowledge and the power of who Jesus Christ is. We aren't personally smart enough or strong enough to go up against any principalities of darkness. The institutions of this world will absolutely consume us in our flesh. We must be given over in humble faith to the knowledge of our Savior's saving hand. We have to be. If you're going to go and engage in the work, it's of the utmost importance that you be filled with the Holy Spirit, completely surrendered to God. And that means fearlessness. That means letting go. That means that, that when the enemy comes at you, you recognize that it's not an attack against you intellectually. A lot of us get all worked up because we're actually not thinking about God, we're thinking about ourselves. When the gospel is resisted, we get proud and we get puffed up because we think that's an attack against us. And then we begin to get in the way. When the truth is, that's the moment where you need to be filled with humility and power before the living God, humble before him. Listen, you can't afford not to have an intimate walk with Jesus Christ. You can't afford it. If you're going to be a missionary, if you're going to be missional in your life, if you're going to preach the gospel, you cannot be afford, uh, afford to be filled with pride and arrogance. You don't have an answer. You need him. Next, he's, he's filled with the Holy Spirit. Next, what does he do? He sets his eyes on him. He sets his eyes on him. I, many of you know this. This is not going to... I always make illustrations like this, but you know Michael Jordan. You know? Make sense? Illustration done. No, I'm joking. Listen. Listen. It's often said that Michael Jordan won most of his games before the game actually started. All right? And what I mean by that is that everything about him, everything about him oozed confidence. And he, he, a lot of times he would win the game before the game even started. He just had to look at the opposition. They just had to watch his body language. They just had to watch his confidence. And there was retreat. And don't take my word for it. Okay? Just, just, just get on YouTube. <laughs> but there was, a, there was a dominance that he had. There was even just a part of his pregame pre ritual. Okay? You guys see LeBron James goes over and he, he throws the... You know, you know, that's actually what Michael Jordan did. That's just that's an intimidation practice. Russell Westbrook runs out on the court. I know you guys don't even know anything about basketball. I'm sorry. He runs out on the court and he screams and he yells, right? These are just intimidation tactics that they learned from Michael Jordan. I, if we're honest. Now listen to me. What's important here is this. Is that a person that's confident in the Lord has no problem looking the enemy in the eye. A person that's filled with the power of the Holy Ghost is not afraid to look at the enemy in the eye. If you're convinced that you can't lose, it changes everything about the way you see the enemy. If God is our power, who can defeat him? Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15.55, in confronting death itself, where is thy sting? Now, if that's not trash talk, I don't know what is. I mean, it's one thing to trash talk Charles Barkley. It's another thing to trash talk death. Oh, grave, where is thy victory? This dude's literally trash talking death. We're talking about a man who was threatened, imprisoned, shipwrecked, whipped, and yet he retains 
a level of fearlessness that for those of us who are coddled our entire lives don't have. Are you hearing me? The Apostle Paul was unafraid. What does the Apostle Paul have that you don't have? Aren't you filled with the Spirit of God? So we need to be unafraid. If we're filled with the Spirit of God, nothing's going to frighten us. Next, we need to be unabashed. Unabashed. And he said, O full of all subtlety and all mischief, thou child of the devil, thou enemy of all righteousness, wilt thou, uh, wilt thou not cease to pervert the right ways of the Lord? That's what he tells the enemy. He knows, the, he knows the enemy's methods and he calls them out. Oh, full of all subtlety and mischief. He knows the enemy's name and he calls it out. Child of the devil, enemy of righteousness. He knows his name. He says it. Unafraid to say his name. He knows the enemy's vanity and he calls it out as, as well. Wilt thou not cease to pervert the, the right ways of the Lord? Listen, I'm not telling you that it's your responsibility to trash talk the devil. And in fact, I don't recommend that. I'm not telling you that you should do that. I'm saying that when the devil shows up on your doorstep, and he will, that you don't back down. When the enemy comes to confront you, and he seeks to take your fruit, and he seeks to mock your God, you ought not be afraid to call him out on the floor. The Lord will always, always, always prevail. He will always prevail. Verse 11. And now, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon thee, and thou shalt be blind. He was blind spiritually, and now he's blind physically, not seeing the sun for a season. And immediately there fell on him a mist and a darkness, and he went about, uh, about seeking some to lead him by the hand. His spiritual reality became a physical reality. Now, we know that the, the, the Apostle Paul was an apostle, and so he had ap apostle gifts, didn't he? He had the ability to do things that you and I cannot do. Now, it was intended for him for a season of life, a season of, of, the, of the church age that we are no longer in. So let's not confuse that doctrinally. But again, I want to point out to you that the authority that Paul has is the same authority that you have. And when the enemy seeks to stifle the work of the gospel, we must absolutely know that. Key point number six. The author of the gospel is also its defender. The author of the gospel is also its defender. You don't need to defend the gospel. You need to call on the author of the gospel to defend his work in this world. He doesn't need a defender. He needs a laborer. He doesn't need a buckler. We do. He doesn't need a cleft to hide himself in. That's us. Let him defend himself. Invite him to do so. We have to trust him. You ought not to be discouraged when people try to mess up the work that God's doing in your life. When God wants you to preach the gospel, preach it. It doesn't matter what the enemy says. It doesn't matter what your family says. It doesn't matter what your friends say. It doesn't matter what, 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 what the world is saying. It doesn't matter. You don't need to hear that. Call it out for what it is and pray that the author of the gospel, the one that laid himself down, would defend his own name. Jesus Christ. Jesus the Son of God, the Holy One, 
the Messiah, the deliverer of the entire world, will he not defend his own name? So what are you fearing? What's muddled the work? What's kept you from the going? What's hindered your obedience? What's shut up your mouth and made you mute? Verse 12, then the deputy, when he saw what was done, believed, being astonished at the doctrine of the Lord. He's not astonished at Paul. He's not even astonished at the work. What does it say? He's, a, he's astonished at the doctrine. His thoughts and his mind were turned to truth to the gospel message, and he believed and was saved. So here's the paradox. Let's open our mouths so that God's word can speak for itself. Let's open our mouths so that God's word can speak for itself. There's some of you who need to repent today because you know that you should have shared the gospel with someone last week. The conviction fell upon you. you. You knew it. You knew that there was a moment that you were supposed to speak up and you failed to do it. And you, and you want to be discouraged in that. And you want to feel guilty. And again, that just all that does is prop up a cycle in your life that says that you don't have the ability to do it. Well, the truth is you don't. You don't. You don't have the ability. No one in this room has the ability to share the gospel and be of any effect. So what you need to do today is let go. It's time to let go. It's time to let go of your thoughts and your ways. It's time to lay hold on Jesus. It's time to be filled with the Spirit. It's time to speak His words wherever you go. It's time to be missional on your campus. It's time to start a Bible study with the lost. It's time to be unafraid. I want to invite the worship team up. We're going to sing a song of praise to the Lord. And if you need to deal with something, it's time to deal with that. Grab a hold of somebody. Pray with them. But listen, there are some of you, I want to to reiterate this point. There are some of you today, don't be distracted. There are some of you today who don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. You've never actually met him. And so the, the idea of speaking on his behalf and all this talk and all the purpose of the mission that I've been talking about, it, it doesn't even make sense. You would never do that because you've never heard the gospel to receive it yourself. No one's made it plain to you. Well, listen to me. Don't leave today until the gospel of Jesus Christ has been made plain to you. There's nothing that you can do to earn the salvation of Jesus Christ. It's a gift. It's time to receive it. It's time to know it. It's time to believe it so that you might have purpose for your life. Let's pray, and if you've got something on your heart, let's deal with it, okay? Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I love you. I love you, and I'm grateful. Uh, Lord, if, honest, if I'm honest, I'm, I'm weak and afraid. I remember in middle school trembling at failing to preach the gospel to my next-door neighbor, Sean. And I remember my little brother not being afraid. And he spoke up. My younger, the the one that was supposed to be weaker, you using him. And it was my pride that got in the way. And it's my pride that always gets in the way. It's the same thing. It's the same story over and over again. There are people in my life that you desire for me to speak to that I would gently present them truth. Lord, there's people all around me that you desire to deliver from hell, and I fail to do my part. Why? Well, because of the enemy. And Lord, I pray that we would resist the enemy. And the one that seeks to deceive, and the one that seeks to prevent, and the one that seeks to to cause us to fear, Lord, I pray that you would make us fearless in his presence, that we would know him for who he is, 
that we would point out his flaws and his weaknesses and declare Jesus in his stead. Lord, let the, let the ruler of this world stand ashamed in light of the ruler of the universe. Lord, be your own defender. Be your, be your might in this world. Be your might in my life. Defend your name wherever I go. And allow me to speak that souls might be saved. Help us, God. In Jesus' name, amen. hope that today's message encouraged you to follow Christ in his word. For more information about Kaya, for service times and information about our disciple-making ministry, please visit our website at caya.live.